Where is InsureTech headed next? This is where indie agents own the answer. Welcome to the Vertifor Insurance Podcast. Let's go. Welcome back to another episode of the Vertifor Insurance Podcast. Really excited to have you here. Um, you guys don't know this, but it is actually 7.30 in the morning on a random Tuesday. And we have a very special guest who has showed up to record with me in the studio this early, has carved out time in her very busy schedule um, to tell her story and to help you guys think through um, a few uh, how the M&A space and how InsureTech is working at a very high level in the industry. So we're going to get into it. Um, she's the expert here. Without further ado, I'm very excited to to welcome Teresa Chia to the podcast. Welcome. How are you? I'm good, Sid. Thank you so much for having me. It's a true honor. Wonderful. And you are uh, newly minted the Chief Financial Officer of Vertifor. So welcome to the team. How's the first couple weeks? Has it been a month now? Well, I've, I've been here since January and I'm right. off to a great start. I mean, I have to say, uh, first of all, a shout out to my amazing finance team. I have been so impressed with the creativity and passion among that team. Every day is different. We obviously cross collaborate quite often with everyone within the company. And our mission is to ensure that we have operational excellence backing us so that we can focus on the things that matter most, which is delivering innovation and customer service for customers. So very impressed with my team. I'm so excited to collaborate with everybody and all the strategic initiatives we have moving on right now. Mm, mm. All right, well, let me start back at the beginning. Uh, before Vertifor, actually before insurance, because I'm always curious how people ended up in this weird bubble of an industry. How did you find insurance? What was your path? Yeah, so I think, like you said, you know, people always have very unique paths in the industry, and then they find it to be their home. And so I started out as an investment banker and then a private equity investor across a number of different sectors. I worked in industrials, in media, in business services, in consumer and technology before joining the insurance sector. Ten years ago, I joined White Mountain's insurance group, where I had responsibility over capital deployment there. That was my foray into the insurance space, and I have loved it ever since. There are so many things that I find so unique about the insurance industry. It's consumer facing. It's got that human component. It's about taking smart risks. There's capital allocation considerations, the test points with regulators and rating agencies. It's so multifaceted and complicated and such an important part of our community. It provides such an important service. I knew pretty quickly that this is where I wanted to stay. Mm. Would you say that you have a, um, a, you know, I, let's put it this way. I was not very good at math in uh, <laughs> primary school. It was very, very, uh, you know, or knew very early on that I was into athletics and storytelling, more of the creative side of my brain. Um, you seem to have been drawn to uh, that, that logical, that, you know, more financially oriented side of things. Um, how, how did you, I mean, just growing up, how did you know that that was something that you took an interest in and were so good at? I mean, I, being the CFO of Vertifor, like you've clearly had a lot of successes very early in life. So 
Well, thank, thank you, Sid. I mean, it's funny in the same way, you know, we're, we're very op we're opposites and complementary in that way. I think I knew at a very young age that I had no athletic talents whatsoever. And I've seen you talk and say so many times that I could never match your storytelling abilities. So I think you're right. I mean, I think at, from a very young age, I've always been drawn to the quantitative side of understanding things. When I see something that I want to answer, I, I naturally gravitate to what the numbers tell and what's the story that the numbers tell. So I think my entire career has shown that. I like to tell stories through numbers, through analysis. Um, you know, the reality is the backbone of anything, there is, a, there is a financial component to it. The numbers do really tell you the truth. I think they always hold you to, accountable to the truth. And I like that, I like combining what I'm hearing qualitatively, um, what we're trying to make judgments on strategically and tying that back to whether or not the numbers tell the story that we, we believe it does. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think I think this is a natural kind of extension of that. I've, I've been in the finance space in many different capacities, wearing many different hats, and I'm really excited here to have an opportunity to be at, at Vertifor and particularly focus, I think, on our on our execution of long-term strategy, mm -hmm. as well as our inorganic, um, you know, our inorganic path, which has been a, a, an important part of our, our growth story so far. Mm -hmm. But and before we get into that that Vertifor piece, which I am really curious, why why Vertifor? Um, I, I would say the other thing that's really unique uh, about your journey is that you've combined this uh, analytical. Uh, you know, orientation with just being able to answer the tough questions with the truth, with numbers, with hard facts, with an interest in business. Because you can take that, that uh, you know, skill set anywhere, right? But, but you said you wanted to apply it to business and then eventually even narrow down further and say really specifically insurance. Yeah. Um, what was it that drew you to the business side of like the business problems that, that you wanted to answer? Yeah, I, th I think that it's, um, you know, as much as I like the numbers, I really do like working with other people too. Mm -hmm. And the reality is like within business, it's really smart, talented people coming together to push kind of the edge of innovation, the edge of where things are going. And so I, I love that energy. I love thinking about really complex problems that are multifaceted. Um, and so for me, I think the, the opportunity to touch on all these different attributes, some of which I have a stronger skill set than others, working in a team environment with others with complementary skill sets, that really is what draws me to business. Mm, mm, that's wonderful. Okay, so tell me a little bit about White Mountain Insurance, because that seems to be where the, the focus on insurance started, if I'm correct, yeah. or, or maybe, okay. What was your time there like? What role did you play? What did you... What challenges did you face? What did you take away from that experience? Sure. So White Mountains Insurance Group is a publicly traded Bermuda domicile holding company that makes long-term investments in the insurance and reinsurance sectors. Mm -hmm. And there I was responsible for capital deployment and portfolio company oversight. So in that capacity, I was really fortunate to have many conversations and work with so many people across so many different companies across the insurance value chain. I had the opportunity to learn from so many different people who spent their entire lives in this space. And I was really, I think I was really drawn to the passion they had for it. I've had many different, very deep conversations about all the changes that are happening in the space. So I think that that, I think that opportunity was so fortunate for me because it gave me like a very broad kind of high level point of view where I had the opportunity to talk to people about many different perspectives and kind of draw my own based on those conversations. 
Um, I think having, you know, being a, a capital support for companies is really a real a rewarding place to be in. Mm-hmm. I mean, to find really talented management teams looking to develop like unique products and services to serve this industry and move it forward and be able to provide one component of support to them and watch those those um, companies kind of grow and develop into their next stage has been so rewarding as well. So I think that those components have all been really, really positive for me. I had a great experience there. Um, and yeah, and I think that led me to continue in the insurance space. I have had uh, a number of different governance roles as well. I currently sit on the board of Kinsale, which is a publicly traded ENS carrier. I've historically sat on the board of Velocity Risk Underwriters, which is a property cat um, focused MGA, as well as Spark Advisors, which is a Medicare IMO. I've also been forced to be a co-founder of my own InsurTech MGA. So, I, you know, in a lot of different ways, I've been able to experience the industry wearing so many different hats. Mm, that's wonderful. And I want to dive into, for those of you listening, what you can take away from Teresa's story from the perspective of uh, an agency owner, decision maker coming into this wild, wild west of the insurtech space, either as an investor or as a business trying to utilize these services. You always want to make sure you choose the right partner, um, somebody who's going to be stable, be around as you invest you know, resources and, and implement that technology. And of course, as an investor, you want to make sure you uh, get ROI on, on the money that you put in. So before we get there, though, let me just quick round out your uh, your professional journey here with how how did you find Vertifor? Because you could really have gone anywhere. I mean, at this point, you could have, you know, sort of exploded out of the insurance industry and into other tech spaces or other spaces. So what was it about Vertifor's story role that attracted you to the position? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I've known about Vertifor for a very long time. You know, back when I was a private equity investor, it was one of these companies that was incredibly well known for its leadership in insurance technology. I mean, it's a space where there are only a few companies that have dedicated their their existence to investing in this space and supporting agents. Because of my insurance background too, I'm a strong believer in the importance of the distribution components of the insurance value chain. Mm. There are so many different things impacting the insurance industry right now that are causing a lot of unique changes. Um, But one thing that has remained consistent is the importance and the vital role that the distribution chain plays in providing a personal human to human contact Mm. and connection Mm. between insurers and their customers. It remains a critical part, you know, in a complex industry like insurance, that that human to human connection will not go away. Mm. And so I've always been fascinated by that. I'm a true believer in the the secular growth of the distribution uh, market and the players. And technology is a key part of enabling those agents for success. Um, and so I think as, you, as I line, a lot of the things that were important to me that I saw as like the most interesting, the most promising areas of insurance with what Vertifor is doing, it was natural for me to be really excited when the opportunity came up to join the Vertifor team. Mm, well, we're excited to have you. Uh, and, in, and the fact that we get to share in all of your expertise and have you lead the company means a lot to the team. So thank you for joining the team and, and you know excited for what's to come. As far as, absolutely, as far as um, 
as far as going back into some of that expertise, as you've, and, and I know you've been at Vertifor for just a few months here, but as you're looking out into the insure tech space, at a very high level, what are you seeing some of those challenges and opportunities being in the rest of 2023 and into 2024 for some of these insure tech companies? Sure. Um, well, I think we're clearly in a time with a lot of macroeconomic uncertainty. So interest rates are increasing. We're still continuing to battle inflation, and that does impact insure tech. I think the increase in, in interest rates will mean that capital will not be as abundant and it'll be more expensive. So for insure tech companies, they need to be very disciplined about where they spend capital and make sure that whatever runway they have to invest in their business is used in the right ways. And so I think that will be something that will be top of mind for the rest of the year. Inflation also plays a big component in terms of managing a business to a profitable place. You know, the, the cost of having people is just increasing. The cost of claims is increasing for insurance carrier partners. And so all of that, I think, are things that are going to be top of mind for everybody. Um, there are also a number of different pockets of insurance right now that are going through huge moments of dislocation and reallocation of, of winners and losers. I mean, you think about the property cat market in the U.S., um, you know, the Florida homeowners market, the, the California earthquake market uh, and, and fire market. These are areas where people are pausing and trying to assess the risk and trying to assess who is going to properly you know, assess that risk and make money um, covering those risks going forward and who ultimately is not. And so these things are all happening all at once for your insured tech businesses. So there's a lot of different considerations, a lot of balls in the air. Um, and so what I see right now is a lot, I think a lot of insured tech companies turning inward and thinking about what this means. Where are the areas that they're gonna double down on? Where are the areas that as they look, they may wanna reset their focus there? And how does that play with how much capital they have and where they wanna place their bets? Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it's a it's a tougher time, I would say, for insured tech. The days of easy, easy money and um, sort of endless uh, hopeful futures are maybe a little more uh, grounded at this point. Yeah, I'd say, you know, we're, we're returning to a place of normalization. So as you're mm -hmm. saying, said like the last couple of years have been highly unusual in the amount of capital that have come into the insurance technology space and the kind of eye-popping valuations that insurance technology companies have, have gotten. And now we're returning to a place of back to basics, I think, right? So I think the fundamental principles of underwriting comes first and logical paths to profitability are, are coming back as like the top of considerations for companies. And so everyone from managers to, um, you know, the, I think capital providers to other uh, other players in the ecosystem, like carrier partners, et cetera, are all thinking along those lines, going back to basics. And you know the, that the the kind of crazy heyday of the last two to three years has has gone away. And overall, that's good for the industry. There was a lot of noise in that time. There was a lot of uncertainty about where to focus. Mm -hmm. And now I think we're coming back to a place where what we fundamentally know about what makes a successful insurance technology business is holding true in the long term. So before I get into whether, or I guess I should say, what your thought process is for how to choose the right insured tech to invest in, because I'm very curious about that. Um, 
knowing what you've just said, is it even a good idea for insurance agencies, small business owners to consider investing in startup insure tech companies? Um, I mean, or is it better for them to wait, wait, kind of wait this out for a little while? Um, yeah, I think what you're seeing is that a lot of agencies are taking a moment to pause, hmm. reassess what their their M&A strategy should look like going forward. And also because there's been so much M&A activity and consolidation in the space over the last two to three years, take a little bit of time too to think about the levers that are available to take all those acquisitions and gain some efficiencies from them. Right. I mean, like technology is a key part of that. As you acquire a lot of different agencies or insured tech providers, there is an opportunity to bring them into a consolidated operational framework with a backbone of technology that's all linked up that allows for better communication, allows for better data analytics, it allows for better and, and less complicated workflows. And so I, I see a lot of agencies turning inward right now to focus on those aspects, the post um, acquisition work that's a critical part of actually seeing the return of, of investments. So a lot of people are taking that pause and kind of reassessing. I think the reality is like because of the higher interest rates, mm -hmm. the, the higher cost and lower availability of debt financing too, um, there is right now a bit of a dichotomy between the valuation that a lot of startup insured tech founders still have in their minds for the last two to three years and where I think your larger strategic or financial investors believe that should be in today's environment. So while interest remains high, I think it's a moment of pause as everyone tries to recalibrate to, an, to a middle ground on that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that I think that there's there are lots of startup insured tech companies who are doing amazing things. And so there are going to be opportunities here too to potentially opportunistically find M&A opportunities. Maybe they couldn't have existed at a valuation that made sense for you a couple of years ago. Maybe they were on a different journey, backed by venture capital, for instance, a couple of years ago. And now there may be an opportunity where we realize you know, they have a great product, they have a great team, and what they're missing right now is capital and the right long-term home for those businesses. And I, I, I see a lot of opportunities to potentially pick up some of these jewels over the next, call it 18 to 24 months as well. Mm. So it's a there is an opportunity here, it sounds like, but it needs to be done with intentionality and maybe the right uh, decision-making strategy, I guess, is, is one way to Yeah, and I, and I would say that the, the choirs in the distribution space um, and the insurance technology space in our industry are are very thoughtful mm -hmm. and very rational. And so I think it's kind of, it's you know, it's what's always been there, which is like returning to what your ultimate goals are for M&A. What, what, what are the areas, the adjacent areas from a product perspective, a technology perspective, from a service perspective that you hope to gain from an inorganic strategy? Mm -hmm. And then asking yourself, have I done the work to think about which ones are which ones are my top candidates that are the best fit, the top talent, um, and, and to go ahead and continue to be aggressive when the opportunity allows for you to you know, acquire the companies that you know are a top fit. Mm -hmm. I think the nice thing now is valuations are in a more normalized place. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge will be to the extent that you need external financing support, that is a market that has more challenge in it as, in, as interest rates have risen. So looking under the hood at an insure tech, let's say you've got 10 insure tech companies that are in front of you and yeah. uh, you're, you're getting to know each of them 
to better understand whether you want to invest and you know potentially you implement that technology into your agency. How do you go about prioritizing those 10 insured tech companies? What's the, what are the key indicators of success to you? Um, and I know part of that's going to be the agency strategy, but I'm more trying to understand from the insure tech side of things. How do we look for, identify stability, uh, you know, uh, opportunity for growth, uh, things like that? Sure. So I think my number one filter, like first thing that I do look for is a management team that has insurance experience. I mean, I think it's really easy to look from the outside and be convinced that you understand it. But the reality is there is deep, deep expertise in this industry for a reason. There are a lot of complex moving parts to it. And for me, it's highly important that I have someone who's running a business that appreciates the complexities and the various participants within the insurance sector and has had experience um, in that sector. I think related to that is talent. I mean, there's a huge talent battle right now in the insurance space. There's not a lot of young talent who um, that that already exists within the insurance space. So how do we attract really smart, ambitious people who uh, to the insurance space? And so I look for I look for management teams that have been able to do that. If you see really talented, smart, ambitious people moving towards a company, I think that signals a lot because they are willing to invest their most critical resource, which is their time. And so for me, that's a huge signal that something interesting is going on. I think in terms of financial like fundamentals, I look for unit economics that makes sense. Um, I, I want to see that from a unit economics basis, you have a path to profitability that that is credible, and you know it does not rely on changes externally that are kind of hopes and dreams. You're not relying on a fundamental shift in the way things are done. Mm -hmm. The insurance industry tends to move very slowly and methodically in terms of change, mm -hmm. and so I think anything that that has to rest on you know fast disruption. Mm -hmm. I tend to be I tend to put a little bit more of a skeptic air on. I, I like to see, you know, incrementally opportunities that allow for more efficiency, allow for more enablement of the human components of our industry. Um, those I think I make a lot of sense to me when you see a little bit of an efficiency in a, in a work area that you have experience with because you're an operator in the space and you gather a team around you to execute on that and have laser focus on one specific area, that, that tends to attract me. And then I think just a lot of like rationality on the financial side, to think of your capital partners as your true partners, not as people that take something from, but someone that you are partnering with and building something together with, that is also important to me as well. Hmm. On that third key indicator, uh, looking at the unit economics and understanding whether the model relies on some really fast-paced external change or whether it could be sort of a self-sustaining incremental growth. Why why would you I mean I guess I'm curious if if this is if the insurance industry just works differently as a vertical than other industries when because it does move slowly. Um, and I I you know I've only ever been in the insurance industry in a meaningful way, not that I haven't watched other industries kind of go through their ups and downs and their own journeys. But I don't understand it to the degree that I do with insurance. Um, and so I do wonder, is is this unique to insurance or or is this just sort of the way business works? Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, as I said before, I think ultimately the insurance industry is about smart risk-taking. Mm-hmm. And so they tend to be very methodical overall in thinking through every incremental change. Mm. Um, why does this make sense? Is it Does it tie to the numbers, right? Is there underwriting profitability here? Um, is my lifetime value over my acquisition cost make economic sense? This is an industry that is driven by numbers and economic profitability. The margins can be really tight, particularly on the underwriting side, less so on the distribution side. And so little changes matter. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard, particularly I think on the, on the risk bearing side because of the regulated component of it and the, and the, the capital um, components of it to turn the ship. Mm-hmm. And so you wanna be very careful. I think that like, people realize that if they make mistakes that are significant, it's quite hard to come out of that. I remember seeing a McKinsey report that talked about the fact that um, insurance businesses don't converge to a mean. So high performing businesses continue to highly perform, underperforming businesses continue to underperform. And so I think the industry is very aware of that. They tend to be very methodical. They tend to be, well, they want to be careful and accurate with decision-making that they're doing, whether that's on the underwriting side, whether that's M&A, um, whether that's hiring new talent, every single decision, they recognize how hard it is to move the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I think that, that just generates a culture of like more, I think more more careful and methodical risk assessment mm-hmm. across the board. Mm-hmm. On the on the fourth key indicator, you talked about that partnership, uh, yeah. which at you know, my time at the startup that I was at pre-Verta4, uh, we took investment from insurance agencies, which was a, a very strategic partnership. You know, all of them, for the most part, were using the technology. Um, sometimes it felt like it was a little too close to home uh, at, at times. Then on the other side of that spectrum, you have more of the VC fund world where they're coming in and, um, you know, may not really know a lot about, I mean, we talked to people with money who had not been in the insurance industry for more than a couple months and were willing to, you know, invest. And it's a little scary to to take money from them because from that, you do want to have that close partnership, but you don't know if they're going to necessarily have the right advice. So how, you know, one of the things I've learned is to watch, always watch the money, I guess, is, is one of the, one of the things I've learned. If you look at where companies are taking money from, it can tell you a lot about the business and not everything because you weren't in the room and you don't know what the contract says and you don't have all the details, but it can give you some indicators. What what do those partnerships look like across you know, strategic investors versus a PE firm versus a, you know, a, a venture capital fund? Yeah. Well, and the devil's always in the details. And so, you know, I'll make some generalizations, but of course, at the end of the day, it's about looking eye to eye, um, looking into the eye of your capital partner as a person. You know, ultimately, regardless of the name of the firm, et cetera, the reality is you are you are striking a partnership with a specific person across the table. And so I always try to keep that in mind. Is this somebody that I want to go through the ups and downs with for a long period of time? Um, you know, I, th- I think you're right. There are like, general characteristics um, that that different categories of capital providers have, and there are some considerations, both plus and minus, for 
all of them. So I think strategic investors, you know, your insurance carriers, your insurance agencies, your longer term um, insurance investors like White Mountain Insurance Group, they tend to have a very long time horizon. Mm-hmm. You know, so you'll, you'll be working with someone across the table that's stable for a long period of time. They tend to have deep pockets as well. So when they make investments, it's not about giving you money for one round and then good luck to you for the next round. You have to find someone else. They are there to support you all the way and eventually, in a lot of situations, be uh, be someone who raises their hand to consolidate you into their business, if it makes sense. So they're often thinking about it with that hat. Is this something that's complementary to my existing business? Is this a business that we think could grow and potentially be part of our business in the long term? And so, you know, I think that the, the long-term perspective is, is incredibly helpful because the insurance industry does go through longer-term cycles and it can require a longer-term investment period for a business to kind of get out of its J-curve and see itself to profitability and scalability. Um, I think there's also a lot of knowledge and a lot of, I think, personal connections that strategic, strategic investors can give you. So if you're looking for... Uh, carrier partners, if you're trying to think about um, marketing partners, there's a lot of linkage. Um, At the end of the day, the insurance industry is actually very small and people tend to know each other for a long period of time. So having the credibility of folks who know other folks um, for a long period of time kind of allows you to be in the room Mm -hmm. to, to, to make those connections that can help you grow your business. I think on the flip side, you know, it can also impede the growth of your business if people see you as potentially having misaligned incentives that are directed towards your investors rather than what's better for your business when those things arise. You know, I think, for instance, if you're building a business uh, that partners with carriers to create a platform where you can seek um, different uh, personal lines quotes, for instance, if you have a few select carriers as your investors, other carriers will ask, at the end of the day, going to show me the best opportunities, mm-hmm. the best customers, or are those going to your investors? So those are the kind of questions you have to battle if you take money from, from strategic investors. And there are ways around you know, those questions and answering them comfortably, but that tends to be what comes to mind for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for your private equity investors, yeah, and your venture capital investors, they're incredibly smart people and you benefit from the fact that they see a cadence of so many different companies. They tend to have seen, you know, what's around the corner for so many different scenarios and you benefit from that. Um, you benefit from their networks as well. They, they tend to bring in people who are operationally very credible and kind of help you with the low hanging fruit. You don't have to make the mistakes on your own that they already know and can help you avoid. Um, but they are, te- they tend to be, fu- you know, fun based, you know, and so they have, they have time based constraints on how long they can be your partners. They also have constraints on how, on what, at what um, stages of your development they're able to play. So they make agreements with their LPs to provide them capital about the, the duration of their investments before they return capital to their investors, as well as the scope of where they're going to play. And so they're constrained by that. Um, you know, some venture capital firms focus on the early days and they can't support you through your Series C, D, and IPO, et cetera. Um, some private firms can't invest in you until you're a certain size. And so those are some considerations that you have to think about. It does mean that there would naturally be some turnover. I think for private equity firms, you may have one partner or two partners across the table from you. With venture capital over time, it tends to mean that you have more. 
or vice six. That means more, uh, more thoughts, more beneficial points of view, but also at times of conflict, it may be slower decision-making. So I think these are all, these are all like different components of thinking about who you want around the table. Um, you know, some, some entrepreneurs choose to go at it without any external providers. They prefer not to have the noise of additional points of view and others have had an opposite experience. It's been transformational for them to build their business with support from external investors. And so I think I, a lot, it goes back down to meeting the people, hearing their stories specifically, talking to other companies they have backed and really peeling back the onion on who you're working with there specifically, how long they've been at the company, how long are they gonna be there with you and whether it aligns with the goals you have for your business. Mm. Do you think there's a, I guess, and I just, it's funny, as I was walking to the office today, I passed a WeWork, uh, you know, office, and we all hopefully know the story of uh, Adam Newman and taking, you know, the funding that he took. Do you think that there's a point at which there's an unnecessary amount of money that a startup is taking to try and almost, uh, you know, combat or hide maybe some of the issues that aren't being fixed un under the hood from an efficiency perspective or, op you know, an operational perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think you're picking up on something that's human nature, right? So for an entrepreneur, they are giving everything to developing a disruptive business that they fundamentally believe in. Mm -hmm. And so of course, survival of that, taking care of their employees is gonna to be top of mind. So there's a natural instinct when capital is abundant to take as much as you can, create that safety margin for yourself. Of course, nothing is ever free. And so that means that you are also going to be on the hook to provide a return for those investors. Um, it, and, and depending on how many investors you've taken from and whether or not they're aligned, you may have a couple of different competing interests around timelines, around size and scope, around the execution path that you're on. So I think that's always the consideration as well. Um, you know, in general, if you take too much money, uh, you know, I think it reduces the like the urgency of efficiency, the urgency to drive towards profitability. And that can be something that's a risk for your business. If it's too easy for you to, you know, sign a lease on a fancy office that, that for too much money that you don't need, if it's too easy for you to sign um, contracts with your vendors with 10% increases a year because, um, you know, the, you have so much capital in the bank, that doesn't drive ultimately a culture um, and operational processes that set you up for success in the long term. Mm -hmm. So it's healthy to have a good dynamic of, you know, capital being just enough for you to kind of take the next step forward. Something that I, I always appreciate um, and I've used in the past is sometimes it makes sense to incrementally provide capital to a business to say like, once you hit this milestone, you know, we're here to commit another check. Once you hit that milestone, here, you know, here's another check. It allows, I think, a, a bit of honesty on both sides. Mm -hmm. Let's agree upfront what we're trying to execute. It doesn't mean that we can't alter the path if we learn new things, but it creates some accountability to check back in and say, let's return back to basics. Um, 
are we actually building something that we believe will be fundamentally like light, you know, changing for the industry and profitable in the long term? And if we aren't, let's be honest to each other before we write another check. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would ag- agree with uh, that sentiment. And it is difficult because I think uh, also a lot of entrepreneurs have a, a little bit of an ego and you know want to be able to say that there were certain funding rounds that were taken or reached or stages that were accomplished. Um, so it's difficult, but uh, understandable at the same time. So go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I, you know, I've been very impressed with the InsurTech founders that I have met with. I think they're very aware of those natural instincts mm-hmm. and most tend to be incredibly thoughtful around who they're putting around the table and how much money to ask for. Mm-hmm. And so I, like, I, I have to say overall, I think this industry impresses the, the culture, I think, of of most of the insured techs is one of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, and they really do recognize the fact that they do have these competing interests. Mm. One last question for you. Um, so uh, we've seen the rise of ChatGBT and multiple iterations since its first launch, which have taken it to, to different levels. That really makes, uh, I would say, AI uh, something that the if everyday person and everyday business person can wrap their hands around and truly utilize in their business in a meaningful way. I mean, I keep hearing more and more stories about new front insurance, for example, bringing artificial intelligence, or I should say machine learning into their uh, policy comparison process and taking a workflow that took you know a few hours down to just a few seconds. Not yeah. eliminating the human component, but just empowering that human component to spend more time on the things that matter, meaning building the relationship or doing the analysis as opposed to finding the information in the documentation. Yeah. Um, we've, there's a lot of pockets of types of insure tech in the industry that, are, that seem to be pretty healthy with payment solutions, uh, you know, sales and service workflow, automation solutions, data, and analytics, now a little bit more of machine learning. Is there a space that you would say is the most um, uh, opportune right now or coming into the next year or two that you think will really catch fire or is everything relatively even across the board and there's not really one you know, insure tech category that is uh, outplaying the rest? Yeah, it was a great question. Um, You know, I have my eye on tech-enabled InsurTech MGAs at the moment. Oh, interesting. I think the industry continues to Mm -hmm. um, be attracted to more specialized risks. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that, and also just a closer connection to the customer. So being able to underwrite more specialized risks, there and maybe it's smaller risk. These are things that used to be unscalable because without technology, it, they just required a lot of time for folks to underwrite and then communicate back to the uh, to the customer. And now I think technology enables, to your point, like AI, machine learning, other components of technology enable these, uh, these more specialized risks to be underwritten very quickly. Mm. Um, and so, I, and so, I, I think that to me, where that opportunity exists is for those MGAs that are very, very specialized on, on various areas where the probability remains really high, and now they have the opportunity to experience these operational efficiencies. Mm. That allows them to focus, like you said, on the customers, on the claims experience, 
<clears throat> on the underwriting, on the relationships with their carriers, and, and move more quickly mm -hmm. through some of these other components that used to take more time. I find that really interesting. Um, I find that the, the, a few of the different InsurTech MGAs who are kind of on the cutting edge of more specialized risk, find them really interesting in an area to watch. Mm, wonderful. Okay, you heard it first uh, on the Vertifor <laughs> podcast. Teresa, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate you, uh, the decision you made to, to join Vertifor and um, just coming on and sharing your experience and, and giving us a look under the hood of how to wrap our hands around this wild west of insure tech. So thank you. Thank you so much, Sid. It was great to speak with you today. Love what you heard? Listen, don't stop here. We know you don't want to. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or YouTube if you love watching and get notified as soon as new episodes come out weekly. Let's go. Mm -hmm.